My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode extra for episode 39, The September Massacres, Part 1. Now, if you're tuning into this and you haven't actually listened to episode 39 yet, then hit pause, go back, and listen to the main episode. These episode extras supplement the main show, and you won't really have an idea as to what's happening if you haven't listened to episode 39. So, in this podcast, we're going to explore two separate episode extras. The first will unpack the simply astonishing survival tale of an aristocratic prisoner, and the second will examine the diary of a Scottish witness to the bloody days of September. Generally, these two episode extras are distributed separately, as in two separate files, so there will be a little bit of an introduction and further context for both of them. Remember that episode extras like these accompany all the main episodes of the show, and are available to all the Patreon supporters of Grey History. These episode extras examine eyewitness accounts of what we've been discussing in the main series, but they can also include everything from deleted scenes to additional historical perspectives to cool backstories about individuals who pop in and out of the main narrative. These episode extras, along with full-length bonus episodes, are available to all the Patreon supporters of the show. I can't stress enough how much I need your support to help keep Grey History on the air. So if you like Grey History, please support the show on Patreon today. The True Revolutionary Tier and above already has early access to Episode 40, The September Massacres, Part 2. Great bonus content, as well as warm, fuzzy feelings for supporting a small independent podcaster, are waiting for you right now. Anyway, let's get into it. Hello everybody and welcome to the first episode extra for episode 39, The September Massacres Part 1. In this episode extra, we're going to be exploring the amazing trial of the French aristocrat named Jeanneac de Saint-Mier. We heard from Saint-Mier in the main episode as he recorded how prisoners eerily awaited their deaths by discussing amongst themselves how best to confront the crowd outside. Well, the reason why we have that record is because Saint-Mier survives the massacres. And in fact, he'll actually be acquitted by one of the impromptu tribunals he faces. Now, in my professional, unprofessional opinion, as someone who knows absolutely nothing about the movie industry, I would say that this trial is worthy of a gripping scene in a Hollywood movie. The atmosphere is dark and sinister. The underdog has spirit and fight, and just when you think you know where it's all going, something comes out of the middle of nowhere. So sit back and enjoy one of the few well-documented trials of the September massacres that actually has a happy ending. At about 1am on the morning of the 4th of September, 1792, Saint-Mier had already been living the nightmare of the September massacres for almost 37 hours. 
In his account of his ordeal, appropriately titled My Agony of 38 Hours, St. Miar details how he and his fellow inmates were terrorised by assailants at the Abbey prison. Recounting the events, St. Miar records the start of his trial. Needless to say, the opening scene wouldn't exactly have inspired hope of one's acquittal. St. Miar writes, At length, on Tuesday, at one o'clock in the morning, after having suffered an agony of 37 hours, which one cannot even compare to death, after having drunk a thousand and a thousand times of the cup of bitterness, the door of my prison was opened. I was called and made my appearance. Three men seized upon me and dragged me into the dreadful room of judgment. By the light of two torches, I perceived the dreadful tribunal which was going to give me either life or death. The president, in a grey coat, with a sword by his side, was supported by standing against a table upon which were seen papers, an inkstand, some pipes and some bottles. This table was surrounded by ten persons, sitting or standing. Two of them had jackets and aprons on. Others were stretched out upon the benches, sleeping. Two men, in their shirt sleeves, stained with blood, sword in hand, guarded the entrance of the room. An old turnkey had his hand upon the bolts. In the presence of the president, three men were holding a prisoner, who appeared to be about sixty years of age. I was placed in a corner of the room. My keepers crossed their sabres upon my breast and warned me that if I made the least movement to escape, they would run me through. I was gazing around for my provincial friend when I saw two National Guards present to the President a petition from a section in favour of the prisoner who was opposite him. He said to them that these demands were useless for traitors. The prisoner then exclaimed, This is dreadful. Your sentence is an assassination. The President answered him, I wash my hands of it. These words having been pronounced, he was pushed into the street where I saw him massacred through the opening of the door of the turnkey's room. So, Sun Miar is dragged into the courtroom to see the prisoner in front of him not only butchered, but butchered in spite of the fact that a petition had arrived from one of the city's sections advocating for his release. Senmiar was standing there with sabres pressed to his chest, and I can only imagine what it must have been like to know that, in all probability, you're next. With the dispatching of the prisoner in front of him, the president of the tribunal, a commune official, says another, and Senmiar is brought before him. And don't worry, we'll be discussing the roles of commune officials and their complicity in all of this in the next episode. With the tribunal president summoning another, St. Miar writes what follows. Immediately I was dragged before the expeditious and sanguary tribunal, in the presence of which the best protection was not to have any, and where all the resources of the mind were of none effect, if they were not founded in truth. Two of my keepers held, each of them, one of my hands, and the third took me by the collar of my coat. 
the president addressing me, your name, your profession, one of the judges. The least falsehood undoes you. Having given his details, St. Mihar informs his judges that he has been arrested essentially by mistake. He informs them that he's been accused of being the editor of a counter-revolutionary journal, which he most certainly was not, and suggests that it was only out of an abundance of caution that the Commune's Committee of Inspection had placed him in prison. Semiar then proceeds to provide the tribunal with a range of affidavits which demonstrates that another man was the editor of the publication in question. So, was that the end of it? Hardly. The judges remained sceptical. One remarked that there is never fire without smoke, which, if nothing else, I find absolutely fascinating because it means that French variants of the common English expression where there's smoke, there's fire, are at least 200 years old. Anyway, I digress. saint Maillard informs the judges that he had been in contact with the editor in question by suggesting what he described as witty ideas. Yes, witty ideas. Apparently, papers 200 years ago also contained bad jokes, puns, witticisms, and a range of other quips which were submitted by readers. Was saint Mihar almost killed for submitting one dad joke too many? We'll never know. But this is exactly why I refrain from telling dad jokes. Although, when I do, he laughs. Gags aside, while the contents of the submissions to the editor are not recorded in detail, we know the accusations they contributed to. Not only was saint Mihar accused of being a counter-revolutionary editor, but as a former aristocrat and as a former member of the army, it was also alleged that saint Mihar had gathered recruits for the émigré forces. The same émigré army that was now helping the Prussians rape and pillage eastern France. But just as the 46-year-old was arguing his case as to how it was impossible for him to have been on the frontiers recruiting for the enemy, his trial was suddenly interrupted by, now wait for it, another trial. I bet you didn't guess that one. Don't ask me how or why, but as saint Mihar was defending himself, some poor priest was dragged into the makeshift courtroom. The priest had been found hiding in the corner of a chapel, and after the shortest of examinations, was sent to the prison La Force. That was, of course, the code word for a brutal and immediate death. And before you know it, saint Mihar had witnessed the bloody demise of not only the prisoner who immediately preceded his trial, but also the priest who had somehow been tried and executed halfway through saint Mihar's own trial. The blades of popular justice moved swiftly, to say the least. With his trial recommencing, saint Mihar offered more evidence to support his claim that he had not been on the frontiers recruiting for the emigres. But the judges questioned who could attest to these claims. How could the documents which saint Mihar provided be proven to be genuine? Almost miraculously, 
a member of the National Guard who was in the courtroom spoke up and confirmed that he knew one of the men that St. Miar was claiming to be his witness. The guardsman, who lived in the same section of Paris as St. Miar, proceeded to examine the documents in question. St. Miar waited with suspense as the guardsman eventually looked up and verified the signature as authentic. I mean, could you imagine if the guardsman got it wrong? If he had said that they weren't legitimate? That would have been the end of St. Miar's life. But luckily for the former aristocrat, the guardsman attested in his favour. And so his trial could continue. That is to say, until the next random interruption occurred. You see, having proven that he was not a counter-revolutionary editor, and having proven that he was not an agent of the enemy's armies, St. Miar was still not out of the woods yet. After all, he was a former noble, and proud of it as well. But as he prepared to defend his royalist sympathies, a jailer stormed into the courtroom. St. Miar described the jailer as wild with alarm, as he informed the president that a prisoner was trying to escape through a chimney. In a move that I can only describe as Darth Vader-like, Mayar, the commune official presiding over the abbe's trials, informs the jailer that if the prisoner escapes, he would be killed in his place. So, what occurs next might have appeared in a Looney Tunes cartoon if, you know, it hadn't been so violently true. At first, the pursuers try to shoot up the chimney to dislodge and kill the would-be escapee. After that failed to work, the pursuers decided to smoke him out instead by setting alight a large fire. Inhaling smoke as he tried to escape, the prisoner fell back down. No prizes for those who guessed that he was immediately butchered. This is now three deaths that St. Miar has witnessed during his trial. As I said, in my professional, unprofessional opinion, it's worthy of a Hollywood movie, or HBO scene at least. With his trial recommencing again, St. Miar delivered a rousing speech in which he defended his royalist sympathies proclaiming that no one could be tried for one's opinions and only one's actions, he fiercely defended himself as someone who had always acted in the spirit of being a good citizen. Interestingly, one of the things that he referenced to prove this was the fact that the mutineers of Narsi in 1790 sought his leadership for their cause, a cause that many of the revolutionaries of 1792 were very sympathetic to. As a reminder, If you haven't listened to the bonus episode on the Nazi mutiny of 1790, that's episode 27, available exclusively for all Patreon supporters of the show. Getting back on track, the judges, having examined all the evidence, agreed with St. Maillard. He was, in fact, innocent. Now, before we wrap this up, I do want to showcase the reception St. Maillard's acquittal receives because it helps to demonstrate the arguments that the mob was focused on eradicating the enemies of the people, and wasn't just on some bloodthirsty quest to kill anyone and everybody. When the judges acquitted St. Miar, the now free man records that all of those in the room embraced him. 
applause erupted, the cries of bravo could be heard. When St. Miar was escorted from the prison, the crowd outside embraced him as well, amongst people shouting, long live the nation. This being the very same crowd which was butchering those who were found guilty. It must have been a truly surreal scene to witness. This man being embraced by those who had butchered his fellow prisoners just moments before. A truly amazing scene. One definitely worthy of a Hollywood movie. Thank you for listening to the first episode extra for episode 39, and the second episode extra covering the diary of the Scottish witness John Moore is about to play. As a reminder, episode extras like this accompany every episode and are available to all of those who support the show on Patreon. For as little as $2 per future episode, you'll get access to episode extras, bonus episodes, and even bonus miniseries which I have in the works. In fact, the True Revolutionary tier and above already has early access to the next episode. Grey History needs your help, and for as little as half a cup of coffee, you can help ensure that Grey History not only finishes the French Revolution, but explores even more amazing events of our past. Now, as promised, here is the second episode extra for episode 39. Hello everybody and welcome to the second episode extra for episode 39, The September Massacres, part 1. In this episode extra, we're going to hear from the Scottish physician John Moore. We heard from Moore in the episode extra for episode 38, and I thought it would be great to hear from him again as someone who was actually living in Paris during the time of the September Massacres. Now, this entry is dated September 2nd. And it's broken into three parts, 1pm, 5pm and 9pm. Initially, we're going to hear him detail the rumours which swept Paris as to the imminent arrival of the Prussian army. And then we're going to hear what resulted from the panic that these rumours created. I will interject occasionally to provide further clarity of Moore's account when required. So let's jump into this eyewitness account from a foreigner who experienced the massacres firsthand. While I was writing, the cannon were fired and the toxin sounded. People rushed in to inform us that the Prussian army had taken Chalon and was in full march to Paris, that the hussars and light cavalry swept everything before them and were already within ten leagues of the gates of Paris. When we stated the improbability of this, the answer was, that if there had been the least doubt, the municipality would not have ordered the cannon of alarm to be fired, nor the toxin to be sounded. What has become of Luckner's army? They would not allow hussars to pass them. The news cannot be true, Moore replied. Why then would the cannon be fired and the toxin sounded, was the reply. This mode of arguing I heard on all sides, and as nobody could give a good reason for the cannon being fired, and the toxin sounded, it was concluded that the Prussians were within ten leagues, and every fresh report of a cannon or a toll of the toxin served to confirm them in that belief. So, to interject here briefly, Moore's diary entry is essentially recording rumours here that state 
that Verdun had not only fallen, but that the Prussian army was now just 10 leagues from Paris. For reference, 10 leagues is about 30 miles or 50 kilometers. So in reality, the Prussians, well, well, we know that they were at Verdun, which is at four times that distance. So there's a considerable difference. And that's why Moore is questioning these rumors. And he inquires about the state of French armies, which should have intervened and intercepted in the Prussian advance. But as we know too well, in times of panic, logic is not the most abundant commodity. For reference, the cannon firing was a sign of troops departing to the front lines. But in this instance, it was taken as a signal for alarm. Back to Moore's account. Five in the afternoon. The most shocking crimes at this moment, perpetrating at the prison of the Abbey, a thing unequalled in the records of wickedness. The mob, they call themselves the people here, but they deserve no name by which anything which has the least relation to human nature can be signified. A set of monsters have broken into the Abbey and are massacring the prisoners. They have been at this shocking work during several hours. The Abbey is quite full of prisoners. Besides those that were there before, great numbers have been sent since the 10th of August, many on slight suspicions. Many poor priests on no particular accusation, but merely because they are priests. Many citizens, as I have been assured, have been arrested of late and sent there from the private hatred and revenge of some of the individuals who at present belong to the Commune of Paris. But suppose there was the greatest reason to believe them all guilty, which is impossible that anybody can. That would form no apology for this violation of justice, humanity, and public faith. A prison ought to be the most sacred of all asylums. There is more reason to consider the violation of it as impiety and the height of wickedness than that of the church or altar. Because in prison, all who are accused of crimes are detained till their guilt or innocence can be tried. They are, during this interval, under the safeguard of government and the faith of the state. On the present occasion, there is more reason than usual to suppose many innocent persons are among the prisoners, because they have been arrested in hurry and confusion, on slight surmises, and often, it is probable, from private hatred. Yet, shocking to think of, they are making an undistinguished massacre of all. Is this the work of a furious and deluded mob? How come the citizens of this populous metropolis remain passive spectators of so dreadful an outrage? Is it possible that this is the accomplishment of a plan, conceived two or three weeks ago, that those arbitrary arrests were ordered with this view, that false rumours of treason and intended insurrections and massacres were spread to exasperate the people, and that, taking advantage of the rumours of bad news from the frontiers, Orders have been issued for firing the cannon and sounding the toxin to increase the alarm and terrify the public into acquiescence while a band of chosen ruffians were hired to massacre those whom hatred, revenge or fear had destined to destruction but whom law and justice could not destroy. It is not past twelve at midnight and the bloody work still goes on. Almighty God. 
What I love about Moore's diary is the sense of outrage and disgust that it conveys. This is a man who clearly does not buy into the idea of some elaborate prison plot or even the immediate assault of the Prussian army. And when he recounts the scenes he's witnessed, the stories he's heard, he is dismayed, to say the least. Now, in episode 41, the third and final episode on the September massacres, we're going to be examining public opinion from ordinary citizens, in particular French citizens and Parisian locals. There will be a noticeable difference between what Moore has recorded here, in particular his disgust, and the reactions of others. So it's important that we should be on the lookout for these responses in the future. Not everyone is going to respond the same way, and there will be considerable support amongst some corners of the populace. Another thing to keep in mind is the fact that Moore has highlighted a topic that we're really going to be discussing at length in episode 40, the second part of these three episodes on the September massacres. Moore asked if this was the work of a furious or deluded mob, and then implies that this could instead be the accomplishment of a plan. We're going to be taking a look at potential plans and plots, and whether or not this was spontaneous, or whether it was a deliberate and systematic conspiracy to liquidate the enemies of the revolution. This is a very murky and very contentious aspect of the history of the massacres, and we're going to be hearing from all sorts of historians that have different points of view. That will be one of, if not the, key focus of the next episode, along with who was to blame for instigating and continuing the massacres, both from an individual, factional, and institutional standpoint. However, it will take a little while for that debate to develop, the one around whether this was conspiracy or spontaneous, and so I am a little sceptical if Moore has done some selective rewriting here. This is meant to be written on the 2nd of September, the first day of the September massacres. In fact, it's not even the first full day of the September massacres. But given the fact that his diary wasn't published until 1793, I have a sneaky suspicion that Moore might have edited his account. I might be wrong, but the fact that Moore was already questioning whether a sinister plot orchestrated these deaths less than 12 hours after they commenced is either proof of incredible foresight and astute observations, or it's proof of him rewriting history. I tend to think it's the latter. Even when referencing primary sources from witnesses of the time, one can never be too careful. That's part of the reason why history is not black and white. Thank you for listening to these two episode extras for episode 39, The September Massacres, Part 1. I hope you enjoyed hearing directly from two eyewitnesses of the bloody days of September. Episode extras like these, along with full-length bonus episodes, are available for all Patreon supporters of the show. In order to produce more grey history, I've taken a huge risk along with the 50 hours or so of work it takes per episode to produce. I love bringing you history that is detailed, history that doesn't sacrifice ambiguity or nuance just to oversimplify and streamline things. But I need your help to make this sustainable. And the best way to help is to tell people about the show and support the podcast on Patreon. For as little as $2 a future episode, you can do your bit to help grey history 
stay on the air. So please, if you can, support the show today. You can find links on the website, in the show notes, or just Google Patreon Grey History. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.